You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models in analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Joining us for this episode is a returning guest who will cause your imagination and your trip itinerary uh, to change as you seek out the vast history of the U.S. beyond the eastern seaboard. Peter Stark is joining us to talk about his recently published book, Gallop Toward the Sun, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison's Struggle for the Destiny of a Nation. A little bit about Peter. Uh, first off, for, for our audience, uh, Peter joined us in episode six last year to talk about his prior book, Astoria, John Jacob Astor and the Lost Pacific Empire. Peter is an adventure and exploration writer and historian. He has also authored Young Washington, his 2018 book. A longtime correspondent for Outside Magazine, Stark's articles and essays have also appeared in Smithsonian, The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Men's Journal, and many others. Mr. Stark is a New York Times bestselling author and a finalist for a Penn USA Literary Award. Um, I'm also very personally proud to, as I said the first time we visited Peter, uh, to welcome back you as our honorary cheesehead to this podcast. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Cole. The honorary cheesehead. I, I wear that. I wear that hat proudly, so to speak. But I'm really pleased to be here and really looking forward to, to uh, chatting with you again. Yeah. So as we kind of talked about before we got started with the podcast, there's some kind of traces of where I'm, I, I, I could guess at, at how you ended up on the story, but can you teach our audience, you know, how did you come to the story? What, what drew you into Tecumseh and Harrison's story? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny as, as an author and, you know, I suppose the same thing can happen when you're an investor, how one idea grows out of another. And sure. it's kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a miraculous birth in a way that, that you come across things and, as you're doing the research for one, you know, one project, one essay, one book, and there's some little detail that grabs your attention, and that's what happened with with this Tecumseh book. I was uh, researching my previous book, Young Washington, which has to do with George Washington's younger years when he's in his twenties, and he's in, you know, no longer in the Virginia plantation country, but he, he's he's over the mountains in the Ohio Valley, which is then you know, a vast wilderness. Of course, it's populated by many different Indian tribes. And um, in the course of researching that, I came across these references to Tecumseh. And, you know, I, growing up as a cheesehead in Wisconsin, and my father was way into frontier history. He was an mm -hmm. amateur historian. You know, I'd, I'd heard a lot about the, the you know, Indian Indian lore in the um, Midwest, and I've always heard, I'd always heard that name Tecumseh, but I never knew what it meant. I, I never really knew who he was. And so I, I started doing a little research. Okay, who is this guy? And 
I learned that he's just, he was this great Shawnee leader who unified all these tribes from Lake Superior down to the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. to try to hold the land as one. So the, the federal government couldn't kind of keep chipping away and dividing and conquering the tribes of the different chiefs and subchiefs. And then what really grabbed my attention was when in my research, I came across this this incident where Tecumseh and Harrison, William Henry Harrison, who was then territorial governor of Indiana, this huge area in the, in the Midwest, and they met face-to-face on the lawn of the territorial governor's mansion in, in what's now within to Vincennes, Illinois, way down in southern Illinois on the Wabash mm-hmm. River. And they tried to work out their differences. And there were very detailed accounts of these speeches and descriptions of this encounter. And it was I found it riveting. And so that's that what launched me into this Tecumseh and Harrison research. And it's uh, it's been a long journey and a really satisfying, gratifying one. When I think it's a great piece of history that you wouldn't normally come across to your point, but yet I think what you're also adding to me, Peter, is, and we'll talk about this a little more later, is you're leaving me more places to travel and go see, which I always I always love. So I, I will come back to Grouseland, but I, I have already got it on my list. So what, what one of the things that comes up early, and I find this interesting, here we are in 2023, and you know we have like social media, and there's this idea of kind of conspiracy theories and truth versus not truth. But those same things were going on in the frontier land back in, you know, the 18th century. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that there, there are two points here that that one, um, I think from our perspective, and I think from the time the first, you know, the Euro- first Europeans landed on North America, there was a sense or there, there came to be this sense that these tribes existed in individual pockets or that, you know, these people were essentially camping out and were not in touch with each other at long distances. Well, in fact, they were. There was a a lot of long-distance communication, but there was also a lot of long-distance rumor and misinformation that would Mm -hmm. get transferred. And it was a lot harder to confirm those those rumors or or dispel those rumors. And so they... um, the, you know, the rumor that there were Indian attacks on the Illinois prairies by Potawatomi in, you know, 1807 may or may not have been true. But it as it, as that word spread east to the more settled areas in, in Ohio and, and just then it was just starting to get settled, what's now Indiana, that, you know, that could just trigger these waves of, of panic, concern and and. Uh, and armedness, you know, ready, mm-hmm. you know, ready for, ready for, for battle. So, so the social media, it's, it's, it's an interesting parallel. And in a way there's the same, the same issue, um, long distance communications, but not easily confirmed. And, sure. um, so that's a, that's a really interesting parallel you bring up. Well, so the other thing early in the in the book, um, and I can't remember if this is in the introduction of the first chapter, um, and we'll come back to the to the man himself. But you comment on what Harrison took into the West with him, and I'm going to quote your book here. 
Quote, the young man headed in the wilds carrying in his bags the tools with which he hoped to forge his path in the world. A work of Cicero's ancient philosophy, a book of rhetoric, and a deep familiarity with Julius, Julius Caesar's military victories, end quote. I, I, I found this intriguing because I think in today's world, I, I often ask myself the question, um, do we think we know too much? You know, he's taking what would be considered classical uh, education tools with him into an unknown West that, I mean, he really knew nothing about whatsoever. And yet we look at the new world today and say, oh, the old tools might not be that good. How, how do you look at like the, even the education of people then to tackle unsolvable or unknown problems versus the unknown problems of today, I think is another way of kind of comparison these two times, you know, where we live and then what Harrison had then. Well, I think in, in, those days, the world was a much simpler place. And Harrison, that is such an interesting example, kind of template model that you just settled on um, and, and uh, quoting that line about the three, three books he, he brought in or two mm -hmm. books and had a lot of knowledge that he couldn't carry very much. You know, sure. he was a young ensign, like 18 years old, and going over the Appalachian Mountains into the wilderness. And so it's not like he could haul trunks full of library books. So he whittled it down to those, those you know, few volumes. And he did have a classical education in, um, in uh, for the time, you know, in the 1780s and, and uh, early 90s. And it's interesting that he took up those particular books as they were, for him, I think they were almost guidebooks in, sure. in a way to, uh, to negotiate the world. And you're right. I mean, he didn't, had no idea what he was getting into. I mean, this is a lot of unknown territory, literally and, and metaphorically. And so he fell back on these things that he really knew. And the, 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 um, uh, you know, the parallels today's classical, I mean, the today's education and what role the classics fulfill and, and what they don't and how much they're used. I, I think that's a very uh, interesting and, and, and good point for discussion that in a way there's so much more knowledge. I mean, information, information, let's put it that way, in the world today. Sure. But is there so much more knowledge? And it becomes really important to find your sources of knowledge, I think, that, sure. that and, and insight. And so the classics are, are one way to do that and a really solid pillar to do that. But, you know, another way is to, there, there are other ways to learn about um, places and people who are, who are far away or much different from you or lived a long time ago mm -hmm. that can also give you that baseline of, of understanding. And so I like to think this, this book, The Gallop Toward the Sun, about Tecumseh and Harrison and their struggle for the, as I say, destiny of the nation, as it says in the subtitle, um, that through historical example, that it teaches us important lessons by going sure. back to this, this, this really significant, these really significant events that, that don't get a lot of attention these days. And sure. um, they've been kind of skipped over somewhat in, in our reading of American history because we, you know, we, we tend to go with the, the, the high points. And, exactly. and this was a, a more uh, conflicted, confusing, complicated, nuanced uh, 
interaction that that lasted over a number of years. Correct. So, so yeah, it's. I think that's really important. It's, but how how do you find your clarity in all that? You know. Well, so to your point, because uh, I think I think your book's a very pragmatic approach to this. Because you're actually like I, I and I think this is something really good that you did in your writing is you didn't really call fouls. You just explained the details and the eccentricities to these situations, and there were a lot of them. To your point, um, that made it so complex. And also, there's information out there. There's knowledge. And then above that, there's wisdom. And so I often ask myself the question, if, if we all studied the classics, a.k.a. more timelessness, and then to your point, could test the baseline as we go out and experience and test the theories, would we actually have a lot more wisdom? <laughs> so, so let's jump. Let's jump. The early conflict that really kind of sets the stage for your story is the Battle of the Wabash, or as it also became known as was St. Clair's defeat. Can you explain what, what happened uh, in that conflict? Or it's also known as the battle with no name because it's hardly recognized. Yeah, in exactly. History. It's. I mean, it's really. I, I. I have a line in the book. I mean, it's kind of partly tongue in cheek, but it. You know, it was. It was such a humiliating defeat for the U.S. that has been swept under the rug of U.S. Sure. history. So what happened? Um, uh, this is 1791. Uh, George Washington has just become president, and he's in Philadelphia, and. Um, the Constitution has just been passed. I mean, you know, some months earlier, ratified by by the states, and the uh, um, more and more settlers, uh, white settlers, are are pouring over the Appalachian Mountains into the Ohio Valley, and and some of the lands were supposedly treaty lands that there have been some treaties, most like mostly the Kentucky, the lands in Kentucky, that that there had been previous treaties. Where uh, you know various tribes and or chiefs, you know, ceded their rights to the land to 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 white settlers to the federal government. There's a lot of unclarity about that uh, in how fair those deals actually were, but there there were these settlers pouring in and they'd settle on these on these lands that were that were under treaty, but then they'd also settle on these lands that were still you know, formally designated Indian Indian lands and like mm-hmm. up in Ohio, things north of the Ohio River. And the they and they kept pouring in, essentially settling illegally. And the the especially the the Shawnee and Miami nations up there, um, and their Shawnee and Miami warriors started to push back and resist these white settlers coming into territory that had not been ceded to the federal government. And so finally, what happened after these uh, Shawnee attacks on, on on parties of settlers or surveyors, that um, George Washington sent in what was really kind of the progenitor to the, the, the U.S. Army. It wasn't even called the U.S. Army. There was no U.S. Army. It was sort of a cobbled together system of, of you know, one leftover uh, division from here and, you know, the Revolutionary War division and then, you know, a few state militias and it's all cobbled together. But it's a big force of close to 2,000 people. It goes marching into the Ohio um, Valley trying to find that it's going to punish the banditti in these Indian villages. And it gets way up in... Um, what would now be kind of Northwest Ohio and Northeast Indiana. And it's getting close to these sort of the, the epicenter of the Shawnee and Miami villages. And 
um, it's exhausted, running out of food. It's way late in the season. It's getting, it's turning winter. Men are exhausted and, and they camp one night and they don't really bother to build the fortifications um, to hold them the night. And then the, at dawn the next morning, they hear this whistling sound coming from all around them. It sounded like bells. One of the survivors described it like a thousand horse bells ringing at once at dawn. And then they suddenly they realized they were completely surrounded by Indian forces. And it was just not one, you know, tribes warriors. It was unified tribal warriors from many different tribes. Mm -hmm. And it ended up just being a slaughter of the of the U.S. You know, this progenitor of the U.S. Army. It was the it was the the largest loss of the U.S. of U.S. forces to Indian forces in the entire history of the United States. So you know, people think of Custer's Last Stand, Battle of Little Bighorn, as a huge defeat. Sure. Well, there were like 200, 200 soldiers and officers died in in at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Every single one of them in in this St. Clair's defeat or Battle of the Wabash or the battle with no name, not 200, but it was it was at least 600 and closer to 700 died. So at least three times more more casualties than than occurred with Custer and the survivors, which who actually included women who were um, part of the camp followers and any any soldier or officer who who survived, they managed to escape, but they had to run literally. 100 miles back to the safety of Fort Washington, what's, what's now Cincinnati. Wow. Incredible route. And it 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 made a big difference. It, the U.S. Army officially kind of grew out of that that route. When it left a stain, uh, because it was, to your point, you know, no one ever forgot that. Um, Washington brought in a former revolutionary hero to tame uh, this new, you know, Western issue. Um, who was Matt Anthony and, and, and how did he suppress the issue? Well, so yeah, as you say, uh, Matt Matt Anthony Wayne Anthony Wayne he earned the nickname Matt Anthony for his kind of boldness uh, was a revolutionary hero, and after the the uh, this incredible uh, slaughter uh, under Arthur Saint Clair, the former general who was leading it, leading these soldiers up. Uh, Washington said, I, you know, I need somebody who's a real, you know, a, a real fighter. So sure. eventually he hired um, Matt Anthony Wayne. And Matt Anthony was way more systematic in training the troops. And and he he'd led Matt Anthony. I mean, you talk about the man for the job. Uh, another interesting thing when you think about business, uh, that he was the man for the job in the sense that he, uh, during the revolution, he was known for like, you know, leading charges against British forces at night, you know, at the, you know, and being at the front of the charge himself. And so he was this very, you know, out there, get in front of it all, the action leader. But he'd also been in these very, you know, uh, intense combat situations. And so he put together a, a new army, basically, and put them through intense training um, up at, a, at an army camp that's near what's now Pittsburgh, and they he he traded them intensely in hand-to-hand -hand combat, because he said, you know, if we if we get into into uh, warfare with uh, these Indian forces, you're not going to be, it's not going to be at long distance. It's going to be right up close. Yeah. And so he trained his guys for that, 
And then he was very careful in his approach to these villages, um, you know, way up in, you know, across this literally wilderness swamps and whatnot, and and built very substantial forts in his in his path. So he he was always uh, had lots of support behind him, and he ended up defeating the unified Indian forces in uh, 1794. Which is assumably why we have Fort Wayne, Indiana, in 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 uh, honor of him. Precisely, if that's precisely, it. and these these Indian villages were located near where Fort Wayne is now today. So a, another common theme that comes up because you know there's kind of like slight hints of unification early in the story, and then to your point. Um, you know, right on the back of this, uh, you know, there's just disorganization in terms of the tribes coming to an agreement. So I think you mentioned at this point, the three fires couldn't agree with Blue Jacket and Little Turtle on how to attack. This discord comes up. There wasn't a unified leader, a unified general. And that was something that the Americans obviously could benefit from because, you know, to your point, Matt Anthony uh, decided how they were going to attack, how they were going to fortify, if they were going to run, etc. Did you did you see that that kind of discord as a common theme uh, up until Tecumseh as well? Well, that's a really interesting dynamic that you point out here. It's and it and it does run through the whole book, through the whole era, through the whole um, you know long interaction between you know tribes and whites on on this continent. And it it's rooted in in really two very different systems of of you know you can call it government. Sure. And w- when you think of of Europe, you know you had a top down hierarchy. You know you that you know typically a king or a prince or someone. There was one authority, out, or sure. a queen out of whom all power grew, and the whole you know state or principality or whatever it was or fiefdom was organized around that one that one figurehead and and but even in in Europe you know in 1500 think of how many little fiefdoms and prince you know principalities and and uh, little nation states there were and all sorts of complicated alliances between them but it, but each one was sort of it was like a top down hierarchy in the case of native americans it was there was a very similar um, kind of geographical if you patchwork, if you want to call it that, um, that there were many, many tribes in many, many different areas, different territory, and yet the the tribes didn't typically not everyone, but they typically didn't have that top down authority as a structure. That a a, a a tribal leader typically, I mean, and you know, when, when you say tribe, that's that's kind of a misnomer too, because a tribe, you know, it's. It, there can be many different segments of a tribe. There can be sure. bands, you know, there can, you know, sub tribes, if you want to put it that way. Um, and that, but the leader of, of a band or a sub tribe or, the, or the, a, a, a leader who rose up within that tribal world rose up by, by um, showing his leadership in, in battle and showing his wisdom. And so it was a very much an earned thing that you earn the respect of your peers. That and so there was, but there was a, a real uh, uh, what do I want to say deference shown to that tribal leader. I mean, huge respect, huge respect. But there wasn't. It wasn't like a top-down authority. And you and if there were more than one leaders, they they which there often were that 
it was a matter of achieving consensus between them. Yeah. And then that's just within, you know, even a band or a, or, or a, or a group of bands or a tribe. And then that, that there was not any, for at least for the most part, like regional organization of tribes into a unified governmental structure in any way. There's some sure. exceptions to that. The Iroquois in upstate New York were, were an exception. There were six, six tribes under that leadership. And in the Southeast, there were tribes organized that way. But, but for the most part, it was a much more dispersed kind of leadership. And so when it came time that that so often that's what would happen is that the the first the British and then the U.S. when they went up against Indian uh, forces, whether whether in negotiation or whether in in battle, that the 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 European you know the the British or the U.S. they had this 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 structure of organization and authority that made made them able to speak with one voice sure. whereas on the indian side it could it could be many voices or, or the voices could splinter sometimes when they and could use the them case, against each other as well like i mean you're and enemy. they use them against each other which which the which the 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 british and then the us became masters of that technique of of and harrison uh, in particular tribes. And Harrison, in particular, splitting tribes or or leaders, you know, bands off from others, and and really, yes, literally playing them against each other. And that's just to go back to the you know, original question because it's 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 very uh, it really illustrates what we're talking about. When when Matt Anthony brought his forces up to punish the Indian villages way up in northwestern Ohio, um, that the Indian coalition of warriors. Some were coming from like up near Lake Superior to fight this guy, to fight Matt Anthony. So, you know, the word had been out to, to unify, you know, we need a unified band of warriors. But that some of these guys who had come from, from uh, the warriors who had come from way, way up like near great distances out in the plains or Lake Superior, they were expecting to fight Matt Anthony, you know, like when they arrived from their long travels. But that that Matt Anthony was moving so slowly and deliberately, they got really impatient, waiting, waiting to have battle with him and all this and all the spoils of battle. And you know, they came for the combat and the spoils, and it wasn't happening. And so, they splintered in part because a number of these warriors and and their leaders said, you know, we can't leave our families back in Lake Superior this long, and it's been yeah. months now. We're we're either we fight them now or we go home, and so. The unified Indian command was had this essentially dissension on within its 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 coalition that some people wanted to to attack right away from the front, and some of the Indian leaders wanted to be more patient and and go around slowly to the rear of this advancing column of 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 uh, Matt Anthony's and. As a result, that because of the impatience, Matt, the the Indian leadership just said, "Okay, we'll take them straight on," and it it didn't work out. And and by that time, it was already splintering anyway. So that so it's a very, you know, really different dynamic between those two systems of leadership, which I think is a, it really uh, germane to how we operate in the in the modern world today exactly when i think uh, to your point when i was reading this i thought uh, you know i was comparing 
um, you know, the, the Native American system where to your point, they had relationships with all these, you know, disparate tribes, you know, all across the country, they all had contact, they all knew of each other. They, in many cases had relatives, you know, that lived in other areas. And so had a, I'll call it a patchwork of communication and relationships and et cetera, um, which was interesting. But the American way of life was really a John Locke view, like a, a uh, you know a natural law, a private property system, which was something that, to your point, the tribes didn't have. And we always try to think about alternative paths, like what was another path that life could have gone down? What could what was another path that history could have gone down? And I'll never forget when I was a junior in college, uh, I had a I had a one of my history professors did uh, all of his work in Mexican constitutional history, and in the Mexican Constitution they. Uh, attempted and did incorporate the indigenous people or natives into the constitution because they recognized that they didn't look at land the same way as other parts of Mexico did. And I, so I, I, I use that as a way to ask the question, could have been done differently? And in Mexico's case, it's it's never really worked. When I say that, in other words, they tried to incorporate it, but it didn't really make a difference, if that makes sense. And did you ask that question at all as you were kind of thinking through that as well? Well, the, yeah, I mean, that that's, a, again, you know, that's one of these key points. How could it have gone a different way? And, yes, I've always wondered, well, you know, say that Tecumseh's coalition of, it, it did hold against, sure. you know, the, yeah. the, the onslaught of, of whites. What, you know, what would that have looked like? And and what one of the things that's really striking is it's, it's I don't know how, and I don't know enough about, you know, systems of government around the world, but... Is there? I don't know how you merge those two different ways of thinking. Um, I think there, there, you know, maybe there are countries in Europe that who have a more, you know, uh, you know, bigger social safety net, you know, that you know, more towards socialism, but still are capitalist. Sure. They might, they might be a little bit in that kind of blended system, but the, 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 you know, I can see it in the Mexican Constitution how that could be really hard to walk a line between between those two different ways of looking at the world. And one of the big difference, a huge difference, I mean, maybe almost the central difference, is just the way we were talking about um, dispersed authority in among the tribes as opposed to a, a top-down authority hierarchy among among the European system, that among the tribes, there was, there was not a sense for the most part of, of ownership of personal property mm-hmm. of, uh, certainly not of land and and also not of material accumulation and um, that that even in those tribes where where, where there was uh, where there was material accumulation like here in the Northwest there were the tribes were really rich relatively in, in yeah. food resources and and so many things but that there that it was considered a, uh, a, a great a way to great earn great honor is to give away things, give away your 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 wealth to other people, and and that you know that's how you were one way to earn huge respect. Um, in the same way that the 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 land was there for for all to use, and so that the European system, I think. When I've you know really kind of pondered this, which I have quite a lot over the last four and a half years or five years, I've been working on this. The the European system is so much more based on on settled agriculture, and that makes it 
all the difference, I think, because sure. if you're if you're farming, you know, you're de you're you've designated a plot of land and and you're you're working it as an individual or as a family or, or whatever. And that whereas the 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 tribes and we're, and we're talking here, the eastern woodlands, there's so many different cultures and tribes and 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 uh, uh, ecological conditions around the, the continent. But here in the eastern woodlands, you know, hunting, of course, was a huge component of 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 their how they acquired food and protein. And so it was natural that that hunters, when they went out, you know, sometimes one guy was lucky and brought back, you know, an elk or, or a deer or buffalo even, that there were buffalo in the east back then. Um, and, you know, that his, 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 you know, colleagues might not have been lucky, but he would share the, the meat with the other, with his colleagues. And, sure. you know, another time they go out and a different guy scores and he shares the meat. So it, it, it was... The, the hunting system really kind of promoted that that uh, that sharing, whereas the agricultural system it was more uh, more defined. Okay, this is your production from this plot. You know, more the European model. But that's not to say that that there was a lot of farming, gardening. You know, garden kind of farming, growing corn in sure. these eastern woodlands. So the women typically grew corn, and the men hunted and. By some accounts, the the women actually provided more of the calories over the course of a year for these in these in these cultures than than the men did hunting. Well, so in I think that was the one place that you could kind of see between the cultures that they kind of actually had something in common. I'm going to quote your book here. Generally, women were not involved in the death of animals since the shedding of blood negated their primary life giving function. End quote. That that seems to be the one place where the cultures did agree. Right is is like women shouldn't be in kind of you know bloodshedding conflict. Um, ultimately, uh, and that was the one thing I took away from the book is they don't agree with the land, but they did at least agree um, you know with, with women not being in the fight, uh, whether it be for animals to your point or uh, to the true conflict of what was going on. Yeah, and that and that as you the quote that you read that um, that women were are so much about fertility and the earth is so much about fertility and so yeah there's this direct correlation and that every both cultures all cultures really honor that fertility and yeah that it's that's it's kind of cool the way that comes across in so many very different cultures yeah um so let's see to hit on it because it's a very important part of your storytelling can you explain the greenville treaty um since it was really kind of the paramount treaty that set up a lot of this discussion and debate and an issue. Yeah. That, um, so, yeah, this is good because we're, we're kind of stepping chronologically here. So, you know, we were just talking about um, St. Clair getting wiped out when he went up to try to punish the Shawnee villages. And then Matt Anthony managed to, to defeat the unified Indian forces. And as a result of Matt Anthony's victory, it was called the Battle of Fallen Timbers. You hear a little bit more about that one than you hear about St. Clair's defeat in, in the pages of history. So after Matt Anthony won the Battle of Fallen Timbers in, in 1794, um, he called a, a, for a huge gathering of tribes um, to work out a treaty. And, you know, there were, I think there were over a thousand Indians, most of them, I think, tribal leaders at this mm -hmm. gathering in, in it was in Greenville, Ohio, 
Um, it's a very small place still. And um, they worked out between uh, Matt Anthony and and the tribal leaders, a essentially a dividing line that that kind of, if you think of the state of Ohio, it didn't exist then, but, but if you think of the st- what's now the state of Ohio, it would be a line that would kind of zigzag from the top of the state of Ohio down to the bottom, from Lake Erie down to to the um, Ohio River. Mm-hmm. And so it was decided and signed by so you know so many tribal leaders and by by Matt Anthony and and I think even William Henry Harrison signed it that the white settlement was on the on the east side of that line and Indian lands were on the on the west side and that's the way it was going to be and that would bring peace and you know that was supposed to be a permanent situation and it was called the, the it's the Greenville Treaty, and it's called the Greenville Line. And it's, you know, it's a really important part of American history, and and in some ways, I think a tragic part. That line was very well established; it was very solid. And, however, over the years, it started being violated by first by white settlers illegally crossing and 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 hunting on Indian lands, and and then by illegal settlers on Indian lands. And then this is where, this is kind of another phase of our discussion. When young William Henry Harrison, he started engineering these treaties that took Indian lands on the west side of those lines. And, and he did it by, you know, by the, as we were saying, you know, the splitting them off, you know, one group, setting one he was group. A, he was a true them. opportunist. I mean, he took He was any a true opportunist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In every sense and, of the word, and so that, and so it, that's what happened is that the, the the Greenville line didn't hold, essentially, and it was in large part because of Harrison's aggression. And he was he was, you know, he had Thomas Jefferson, who's now become president, pushing him to to go as push west as far as you can, get as much as many lands as quickly as you can. So that line didn't hold, and um, and that's finally what led to Kumsa. In, in starting about 1809, when Harrison was trying to take you know one more treaty, and Tecumseh finally said no more. And by yeah. that time, he'd risen to leadership among a number of tribes, and he unified those tribes to say we're holding we're holding the land as one. And so yeah. that was a central conflict. Yeah. So some nuances here that I think you do just such a good job explaining. One of the natural conflicts, and it's not like anybody sat down one day and said, we're going to make this the conflict, but one of the natural conflicts was the United States' best asset ultimately was its open land, right? Or the amount of land that it had available relative to other European societies, for example. And so I, I took it away as like there was a gravity that had to be you know, held in effect. The tribes had to fight that gravity, and that gravity was the best asset for the U.S., and I think you pointed out that, you know, uh, Revolutionary War uh, veterans were guaranteed Western lands in some cases. That continued to be the ultimate stimulus for the growth of the American economy was people acquiring land, improving it, and bettering themselves. The problem is that came directly at the cost of the tribes. Hey, that's exactly, that's, you just hit it right on the head. You just distilled it. And that's so important, you know, that that concept of there's this body of land. And I've tried to emphasize that in the book. Um, and this, uh, you know, because you, you're you you're in an in, in investment business and um, this, 
you really understand this, you call um, that a business needs needs capital to start. Correct. And these Europeans who came who who came across the, the the Atlantic, you know, many of them were poor indentured servants. They had nothing in Europe. You know, they had it was so hierarchical in Europe, and the land had been, you know, t- sewn up centuries ago. And so they had nothing, you know, they were mostly landless or their families grew too big for the farm or whatever it was. But when they came across the ocean, the Atlantic, that in a way, the whole continent eventually became a huge pool of of venture capital for these, these, the European immigrants. And it's, it's a point I try to make and that, there, you know, there's this incredible American initiative and and enterprise that that we celebrate and and we're, we're, we rightly do so. But when people say, "Oh, I did it all on my own," I, I just I, that's a place where I roll my eyes. Sure. That that this 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 you know American you know civilization society economy whatever you want to call it the U.S. as a as a as a uh, uh, an entity a national entity. Every single person who came across the ocean from Europe virtually benefited by having this enormous pool of capital when they when they landed. And, you know, they had to earn it, or eventually they had to earn it. But but it was incredibly cheap, cheap capital. I guess I should say cheap capital. And so there's, a, you know, this has been a big takeaway for me in terms of, uh, you know, as we're talking about leadership here and and opportunities. That these the people who immigrated had so much initiative and a lot, so much self drive, which is very much you know we celebrate that in our national character. But they also had this huge pool of cheap capital to help them. So people didn't. I just did it on my own. Nobody just did it on their own. Well, yeah, but we 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 still hear that today. Like we hear tech people say, like, "Oh, I'm libertarian. The government's never helped me." And then you look at the history of technology and it's huge government spending. It's huge, you know, military spending ultimately drives that because I think I think another uh, thing that I pulled away was even talking about the Louisiana Purchase. You, you discussed that when the French sold the land, how the French interacted with that land with the natives it was totally different than how America wanted to interact with that land, which was the French kind of left the tribes to themselves. They wanted to have fur trapping and, and, you know, I'll call it commercial networks versus the United States um, wanted to settle it, which was different. Yes, exactly. And, and the, the, the French were, they almost melded with, with the tribes. I mean, if you think of in Canada, the, you know, the, the French voyageurs, a, a lot of them that were, 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 um, you know, mixed blood, you know, both, both races, Indian, Indian and white, whites would take an Indian wife. And they and the French would adopt, you know, Indian ways, or there'd be a blend of French and Indian ways. In the, you know, if you get to the south and the in the colonies, there mm-hmm. wasn't that blending between the the British and the and and the and then the Americans. I mean, there was some of it, but not nearly to the degree uh, that the French were engaged in that. Um, and in the in the uh, British and American way, it was 
so much about settling the land and cultivating it. And the French were much more sort of expansive. Um, and I, there, there are reasons for that, too. There were certainly French settlers and farmers in, in, in Canada. But France had a, you know, a relatively small country of Europe with a huge land mass empire. And, you know, even if they wanted to, I don't think they, they couldn't have farmed sure. the whole thing. Yeah. So let's, so let's jump to, um, let's talk a little bit about Harrison's background, because also some of his, you know, what, what I'll call his ultimate biases were really foreshadowed in where he was raised and the culture he knew. Yeah, um, this is besides the figure of Tecumseh drawing me into this story. It was the figure of Harrison who drew me into this story. So it's it's really kind of almost a dual biography. Yeah, and Harrison, you know, I I kind of laugh because William Henry Harrison. You know, if any Americans today can name who he is, he's almost like a trivia question. Yeah, uh, like a you know Bart. Who's the who's the shortest pres- president of all time? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Short, shortest Short, term in office. Shortest yeah. term in office, and the answer is William Henry Harrison. And so yeah. his presidency is sort of a joke. I mean, it's like a barroom trivia question. He didn't have time to do anything as president, so he was president in uh, eight, in eighteen forty, and he he was elected, and yet he made a huge impact. The, the biggest impact he made was way, way, way earlier as a young man in the late 1790s and early 1800s. He had come from um, one of the most prominent Virginia plantation families. So if you think of one of the principal founding fathers, in fact, the guy who was running the debate about the Declaration of Independence in the Continental Congress and getting it passed through the Congress uh, was uh, uh, Benjamin Harrison V, who was William Henry's dad. So he was a huge founding father, and there were fifth-generation Virginians, and they had this big plantation. Very, very Jeffersonian too. Very Jeffersonian. Very just yes, very Jeffersonian. Exactly, very Jeffersonian, and and yeah, all about agriculture and and. Um, uh, they, you know, and of course, they, it was a big slaveholding uh, economy. And what happened was that that it's it's such a it's a wild story, and I, I kind of love this story, and I won't go into too much detail because it's, it goes on and on. That uh, Benjamin Harrison V, you know, fifth generation, you know, at the top of Virginia society, big plantation, um, but he he spent a lot of his time wrapped up in revolutionary politics. And, you know, it was kind of like he wasn't really tending to the farm back home, literally. Mm-hmm. And and so the plantation sort of went into economic decline. And by the time, but he had three sons. And as his sons were, were you know, getting into their teens, he essentially told them, you know, this plantation is not going to support you guys. You know, it supported me and our ancestors, but it's not going to support all three of you. So each of you needs a profession. And he said to the oldest son, you become a merchant and the middle son, you become a lawyer or vice versa. And the third son was William Henry. And he said, you become a doctor. And William Henry was this kind of gangly guy who was sort of a, you know, he, he have a sense, he was kind of this wimpish figure, but he really liked the outdoors and he liked hunting and um, he was a good rider and, uh, and he was a good student. And eventually he went to, um, you know, he came out of this Virginia plantation culture and he was sent to medical school in Philadelphia, which I, I'm pretty sure was the only medical school in in uh, 
in the U.S. and maybe in all of North America. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was also one of the the principal uh, uh, physicians at the school was Dr. Benjamin Rust, who has a place in early American history in many different ways. But he was a practitioner of of what was called heroic medicine, and that all had to do with you know, um, the measuring of bodily fluids, you know, yeah, blood, bios and rumors and, and yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, was, it, yeah, you know, t- yeah. And, and William Henry Harrison got to medical school and it was like, you mean, this is what on? I'm going to be doing for the rest <laughs> of my life. Yeah. It's funny. More people didn't <laughs> think that though. I know it's funny. They didn't. Well, and that, that form of medicine was starting to die out at that point, but, but he just, I mean, he literally, he bailed out. He just quit. <laughs> and, and he, at that time, the these uh, it was just at that moment was when Saint Clair was was marching towards the Shawnee villages, you know, on the first big strike at, at the Shawnee villages, and and uh, William Henry, uh, you know, quickly ran in a way he ran away from home and signed up for the army and went over the mountains, and. Uh, by that time, his father had just recently died. I don't think was, his father would not have let him leave medical school and run yeah. over the mountains and become an Indian fighter. But he had a guardian in Philadelphia, Robert Morris, who was a you know, big finance guy, financier for the revolution. And the guardian, so Robert Morris is supposed to be tracking young William in 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 Philadelphia medical school. and But young William bails out of medical school. He doesn't tell his guardian, William Morris, but he goes straight to George Washington, who's happens to be president and isn't in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia and, and who had happened to be old man Harrison's, you know, Benjamin the fifth, uh, William's dad. Yeah. George Washington and, and Benjamin Harrison were roommates during the, during the revolution, wow. during the uh, work up to the revolution, during the continental congresses. So, Harrison bails out of medical school and he sneaks over to George Washington's office and has George Washington sign him an ensign's commission, even though he's underage, that Harrison's underage to get an officer's commission. And then he says he does this within 24 hours, Harrison reports. And then he joins the army and off he goes over the mountains to fight Indians on the other side. Yeah, so he obviously ends up uh, beating out, I think it was Winchester to become the territorial governor. Um, if I remember correctly from your story. And he takes on this role, which is a very strange role because, um, you know, he he, go, he goes to Vincennes, as you mentioned. Um, what was the importance? Why, like, why did he choose Vincennes? Yeah, that, you know, here here again, it's, this is, I grew up in the Midwest, in, you know, Wisconsin, honorary cheesehead. And so I know Midwestern geography pretty well, and especially upper Mid, Midwestern. I yeah. didn't know this geography at all until I started studying it. So did he just decide, like, he looked deep into, you know, what was considered Indian country at that time and said, you know, that looks like a beautiful place. I'll pick that. Because that's how the story kind of read. It, you know, like, I, I picked the setting that I wanted. It didn't have a ton of, um, you know, military strategic importance. He just wanted everyone to know he was there. There's there's much more to the story than that. And Sins on the Wabash River is in southern Indiana, on the Indiana border. And it's, even today, it's a tiny town. The reason it existed was because it had been a, a ford for buffalo herds going across the Wabash. So uh. the Indians had sent up, uh, you know, hunting stations there. And then when the French showed up way early in the in the colonization of North America, they built a fur post there. And they that's why it was called Vincennes. It's a French name. And that was like the early 1700s. And so it was this kind of island of European, you know, settlement 
way out, way, way, way out. Yeah, way in, out in west. Indian country. And so when when you know, I won't go into all the complicated details, but when the U.S. Uh, became a country, it passed a constitution. It it also passed the Northwest Ordinance, which which essentially claimed all this territory in the, the Midwest and Upper Great Lakes. And that became the Northwest Territory. And then it was split off, Ohio was split off, it became Indiana Territory. And the capital of Indiana Territory, Congress chose it to be this tiny, tiny outpost way out in Indian country, Vincennes. Yeah. And that's so where Harrison built his incredible mansion, Grouseland. Yeah, which I do want to visit because it, it does. And by the way, it looks very Jeffersonian based on the pictures I can see uh, I, uh, online. So he, he, he stuck to the, he stood to the family roots. Tecumseh, um, you know, it takes him a while in your story to kind of come of age. Uh, and in so many respects, to your point about consensus, he was just a young warrior. He was a young leader, but wasn't a leader of, a con- of the Indian Confederacy early on. It took time to build into that role. But I think I think you used the word at one point um, to talk about his dress attire. You called it panache. When you look at his oratory, um, I think I have it in here uh, somewhere in my my notes where he comments that um, you know he's talking about William Harrison, you know, hearing gossip, and he he says something along the lines of, "Oh, those are you know those are the birds you're listening to," almost mocking this idea that. Um, you know, that he's listening to these voices out there, um, but yet comes off plainly, simply um, interesting. I, I, where, where did he get that master of, of command of the room? Because I, I walk away with either the, the um, interactions he had directly with Harrison at Grouseland or these others where people walked away thinking, I, I, I'm going to fully uh, focus my attention on this person. On, on Tecumseh. You're Correct. Saying, yeah, that Correct. Had, had incredible charisma as a leader. Um, you know, panache as you were, as you were saying in, in, in dress, and um, and this incredible oratory, and you know his language is just beautiful in these speeches, and powerful. And yeah, where did where did he come across? You know, how did he how did he evolve into this leader? And um, I think part of it was that um, he came from a long line of Shawnee leaders and warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, including his father, who died in one of the first battles against the British Virginians in the Kentucky country, and his his mother apparently was also from a line of leaders, and but his his father was killed in in this battle against the British Virginians when Tecumseh. I'm spacing out how old he was, like seven maybe, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his mother uh, finally left that region, what's now Ohio, and and migrated across the Mississippi River because it was so violent. There were so many attacks by the Kentuckians on on their villages um, that she just left. And so Tecumseh was left in the care primarily of his older sister Tecumseh and her husband. And this and Tecumpe seems to be a remarkable woman, and I, mm-hmm. I just wish there was more documentation of her. There are just bits, but that that how she was so respected by the other women, and how she and Tecumseh had a really good relationship, and how Tecumseh respected her, and I, I just have this sense that she was a very stabilizing force in his life, and 
he had incredible talents. I mean, from the time he was a small boy, athletically, you know, training and warfare and, and, and war games as a boy and, and had a kind of a natural knack for leadership. And I think that, that he, that, to come see to come pee as his older sister helped him cultivate that and really um, grow into that role over over the years and so that you know again it's not one of these cases where someone does it alone there's this whole support network that, that yeah. you don't see and he he was endowed with clearly natural talents but he developed them to this to this amazing level and whites and whites and Indians alike would say, wow, this guy is incredible. Yeah. And I, I, that's why I also continue to resonate through the decades to follow that. Um, I, you know, I also had to ask myself the question, you know, his brother who was kind of a drunk, kind of worthless relative to Tecumseh and then suddenly becomes, you know, what I'll call a religious fanatic and people follow him. It makes me wonder how much of, uh, you know, Tecumseh watching his brother garner um, people's passions also taught him something too. Um, because his brother, obviously, in your book, became known as the prophet, and he roused everything from tribes to come from far away to, to meet him, all the way out to like Quakers. You tell the story of the white Quakers showing up and saying, um, I think they were, it was like, hey, we want to do the same jumping jacks you do. Um, you know, so I, I, I found that interesting to ask how much of that fed off. But so really where I kind of, you know, post 1809 is really where Harrison got far more aggressive and, you know, continued to plot to the point, And I think this is a really interesting nuance. You pointed out that Madison at that time as president didn't want trouble with the tribes. Um, with the natives. And yet Harrison didn't care, which it also kind of creates this dynamic of regional slash local politics, in effect, you know, doing what even federal politics didn't want. Yeah. And Harrison, by that time, you know, he'd grown into his own role as governor. And, you know, he was a guy who knew what was going on in essentially an area was the size of France. That was the size of Indiana territory. You know, it was correct. You know, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, on and on and on. And so, so he was a guy who knew what was going on on the ground. James Madison was was a high powered intellectual, and he was not a wilderness guy by yeah. any means. He was almost the opposite. And so he, you know, he had very little sense, as far as I can tell, of what was going on on the ground way out in, in the in the uh, Indiana Territory, and so he was leaving it to Harrison, who had been territorial governor under under the previous administration, under the Jefferson administration, and and so Madison inherited this territorial governor Harrison, who was very smooth Harrison, and you know, convinced Madison and Madison's secretary of war, you know, I got it covered here, you know, leave it to me. Yeah. And, and they, but they warned, they told him repeatedly, do not make Cause Harrison kept trying to sneak through these treaty deals, you know, these, these, you know, divide the Indians and try to slide through a treaty, um, you know, get somebody to sign and then get it signed off in the, by the federal government. And, it, it, you know, Madison and the Secretary of War, they, you know, 
it's, these treaties are so complicated. You know, the land goes up this river branch and over this branch, and Harrison would say, and this tribe really likes it, and blah, blah, blah. And um, there's no way they could know what was going on on the ground. But they kept sure. telling him, don't start trouble with the tribes. Do not do anything that would make them unhappy. Harrison essentially did just the opposite, even though he was reassuring them. Yeah, I got it covered. No problem. Got it covered. And the, exactly the opposite happened. He was so aggressive against the tribes in taking their land that they became extremely upset. And, and Tecumseh rose as a result of that. And to your previous point about the prophet, his brother, that 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 that, that was a kind of a, a, a it had been a, a, quite a long tradition among these among these tribes that at certain difficult times a prophet would arise among them sure. and 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 you know try to and lead them in a new direction and you know and unify in a sense around this figure and so his brother you know who had been a kind of a drunk a poor hunter you know one day arises you know kind of swears off all that and has a vision and becomes a prophet and but attracts you know it's a time of great stress and he attracts followers from as you were saying, from all over. But then at a certain point, I, that, that Tecumseh, who was a, a secular leader, you know, war, a leader in war and, 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 and diplomacy, he was already known for his oratory by this time, um, he essentially harnessed that energy that, that the prophet had gathered, you know, all these people coming to, to see the prophet and all, and so many tribes kind of, and individuals, you know, taking allegiance with the prophet. And Tecumseh uh, harnessed that, that sort of spiritual energy, and he, he made it into a secular movement as well. And that was part of his brilliance. And so um, that, I mean, I think, again, that's another one of these lessons that you can take into the, into the world um, today in, in the business world, whatever world, is that Tecumseh saw this source of energy and, and he, he, in a way, um, harnessed it into a, into a, a different cause. In a way, you know, you'd say a greater cause. That, totally. It, well, he didn't have to create it. He just, he used it for his purpose much better. I think, you know, the interesting tidbits I think readers can pull out. I mean, I think his brother, he actually predicts the solar eclipse, <laughs> which, which was like, I read that. I was like, wow, this guy is either friggin' crazy or he's brilliant. I don't know which one. Um, and so when I read that, I just like, it's a great tidbit that people have got to read. Cause you're just, you begin to ask the questions. I think you did this actually in the writing where you were like, well, I, you, you can only wonder how he knew that was because of what the tribes already knew. Is it because he'd come in contact with someone else who had taught him about that, et cetera. But he pretty much caused people to go to their knees over predicting a solar eclipse, which I thought was, uh, incredibly brilliant. And, and there were other, I think, um, I, I, you, you mentioned the stress that was going on at the time. The question is, um, you know, did he rise up because of the stress or did the stress cause him to rise up? Um, I think, you know, think of the fanaticism of the last couple of years over COVID, for example. Do some of these things rise up because, uh, you know, things are weird or is it the inverse of that, right? That's a good parallel, right? The, right, because it's the, the stress the, that might cause it the excitement in, in, in the beginning. Right, what what comes first, the, the stress or the... the uh, the, the the weird things that happen exactly and i think you pointed out yeah tecumseh ran across um you, you mentioned that there was a comet 
coming around the time. I think this is post-1809. We're, we're about to roll into the War of 1812. He's, he's traveling the country, uniting the tribes. Uh, he sees a comet in the sky that everyone would have saw, and it was like, okay, that's a sign, right? And then there was the earthquake you pointed out in your book in the Mississippi River, which uh, it moved the river, I think you said, miles uh, from where we've been from prior. So all these things were, you know, around a time of stress and therefore people were kind of, in some cases, looking for importance. But I was going to say, so it, the 1812 really set the kind of the finality of Tecumseh's story, though. I, I think that's what you kind of lay out as that was his ride or die moment as the leader of the Confederacy. Yes. And that there, you know, there are very complicated international politics involved in this, including the rise of Napoleon. And yeah, which you did a good storytelling of that in the background, because that was a background story that I think you did a really good job of helping people understand the pressure that particularly Britain was under to be in the conflict or not. And right, and and I, I love it just in terms of venture capitalism. As a side note, that Napoleon wanted a cash cow down there and and taking over some of the sugar islands of the Caribbean. And, that didn't work out for him. Yeah, it was truly a venture capital investment. It failed. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work out. And so he ended up saying, well, I, we don't need lands over in North America. So he sold it to Thomas Jefferson. So it was, you know, it was kind of almost that random. But that the, uh, so the War of 1812, so much of this literally does grow out of Napoleon because, you know, he was this, you know, I don't know if you call him crazy or what. I mean, he but he just went sweeping through Europe with his armies. And the British were trying to fight Napoleon, and um, and they had, uh, you know, they needed a lot of cannon fodder, so to speak, because these yeah. battles, you know, you hear these battles are like hundreds, of, you know, hundred thousand people in a battle, and um, so what the what Britain started doing in the early eighteen hundreds, you know, in the Jefferson administration and and beyond into the Madison was. Um, the British Royal Navy would stop American ships, and you know, there was virtually no American Navy. These were American like merchant ships. Would stop American merchant ships and would go aboard and would haul off that American ship anybody they suspected of being a British citizen or a deserter or someone who they could use as cannon fodder. You know, who had sure. who had some British connection, and. The Americans were outraged. You know, you can imagine it's. I and I, I think I, in the in the book in the Gethsemane the Sun book, I compare it to like, you know, here's this adolescent country. You know, that, so that say this is 1805. So what, what the Declaration of Independence says. So it's like 40 years or later. You know, this country's barely got off the ground. The Constitution probably 20 20 years later, 25 Constitution's yep. barely passed. And so this adolescent country, you know, all kind of proud of what it's done, separated from the mother country. And then you know it's got the the, the proud independent country as its ships sea, and the the parent country comes and just grabs those ships and beats down the doors and pulls out the, anybody they feel they want to have. And I compare it to like a, you know, a, a, a teenager adolescent and having his or her parents break into his or her room and, you know, bedroom and start rummaging through the drawers or what, you know. Whatever. Yeah, scolding and, them. Yeah. And scolding them. And 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 it, it caused that kind of outrage in the U.S. and um, really angry. Um, and so that's, was that kind of behavior on the part of the British was the, the main triggering mechanism for the war of 1812. And, and we, you know, I didn't 
I couldn't have told you what the War of 1812 was about until I started doing the research for this book. Um, and it was about a lot of things, but that was, that was, you know, the main or one of the main causes was that the British, the you know, essentially the British government was not respecting U.S. rights in the way in the in the eyes of the U.S. and especially having to do with these press gangs and the ships, and so that. Um, that those tensions started building, but they started building early, you know, like the war wasn't declared until um, the like June of 1812. But, you know, in 1808, the, these tensions were building, 1807, 1808, 1809, were, they were really simmering. And that at the same time, the the British were, you know, they they'd kept Canada after the revolution, obviously. They'd given all their lands up to the Mississippi, to the U.S., but they still had a big presence, the British did, in the Great Lakes, and they had forts throughout the Great Lakes. And they were, the, the Brits were were wanting to kind of set up this thing, they called it the Indian Barrier State, in a way to, to, to have tribes hold the land kind of down what now would be the Mississippi River Valley, you know, across the center of the continent, and tribes would hold the land, and it would keep the U.S. contained to the east part of the continent and the rest of the continent, you know, free for whomever, um, whatever powers. And that, so the Brits from Canada were encouraging the tribes um, in that in that region to, to join, to become their allies, to become British allies. And 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 help establish this you know this British uh, this Indian barrier state, and the the Brits really wanted to contain the U.S. to the East Coast, so they were essentially trying to recruit the Indians into that effort, and the Indians at the same time were trying to I mean you know the the or the, the Tecumseh coalition was trying to um, hold the settlers you know to the East Coast or or most you know to not farther than Ohio, um, not no farther west than Ohio. And so that it ended up being, they, they kind of courted each other for a while, the Tecumseh forces and, and the British up in Canada. And then they, then once the U.S. declared war on Great Britain, in June of 1812, then they, the the British and the and the and the tribes were no longer talking. That's that's the moment they became solid allies, and that was, as you say, the beginning of the end for the Tecumseh coalition. Yeah, because then, the, as, as we talked about before, um, your prior book on Astoria, one of the central places was Mackinac Island, um, and that ended up becoming the flashpoint for the War of 1812 in, in that region, and to your point, the upper Midwest, um, you know, that was the original conflict where the British and and the uh, the native tribes took that very handily in a surrender. And, and that the, the person there to really fight that resistance ultimately was General Hull uh, in Fort Detroit, which it's interesting to think that Detroit to this day is still the border town with Canada. It, it, in other words, that line was a pretty well set line uh, for, for history. Um, could Just briefly, could, could you e- explain if you were in Detroit for that conflict uh, when the tribes and, and the British came – how gruesome that would have been to be General Hull, who obviously, as we all know now, he surrendered. It's yeah, it's it's a, a really dramatic story, and I, I didn't, you know, I'd only heard the name like Siege of Detroit or the Fall of Detroit. I didn't realize what a 
traumatic story it, it is until I really started doing the research. But yeah, you, I mean, interesting point you make about Detroit's still the border between the two countries. And, you know, then it was the British Empire and the, and the U.S., um, the British Empire up in Canada. And that um, once the War of 1812 was declared, that there were, there were these groups in Congress uh, or individuals in Congress, in the U.S. Congress, that, known as the War Hawks. And they were all about fighting the Brits. And, you know, they were very kind of aggressive um, uh you know, let's 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 take it to them, and the Warhawks were really pushing for the U.S. to um, invade Canada and take all of Canada. You know, like throw the British right off the continent. I think Thomas Jefferson was very much of this frame of mind. We'll we'll just push them off the continent. Mm -hmm. And the War of eighteen, you know, once the war was declared, that this became the opportunity to push the British off the continent. So the uh, and a. a an army under General Hull, who was a 60-year-old former Revolutionary War general, actually started an invasion of Canada in in that uh, summer of 1812. And for various reasons, he was repulsed and he was turned away. And Tecumseh was part of the attacks going uh, going on to his rear. And so he fell back to Fort Detroit, you know, which was this big fort above this, you know, small town village of Detroit itself. He withdrew his forces back to Detroit. And then at that time, a British commander, um, Brock, came down in boats from down the length of Lake, Lake Erie with his troops and reinforced the British at the at the British fort that's across the river from from uh, Detroit. And so now instead of the Americans invading Canada, now the British are suddenly swinging around and start attacking Detroit and and by shelling it from right across the river, right across the Detroit River. And General Hull is holed up in this in this fort. And with all the women and children of the whole village, including his 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 wife, his granddaughter, and his grandchildren, um, and you know that's only a small part of all these civilians and 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 many soldiers, and these you know huge British shells start dropping into the fort, and meanwhile, the the, the tribes under Tecumseh and other leaders come around the fort from the backside, and they're you know. A thousand warriors back there, and then meanwhile, uh, Brock launches his own British Army land force across the river in boats and lands three miles from Fort Detroit and starts marching on it. So you have this holdout that's being crushed by three sides. This fort, and and the cannonballs start just ripping through the fort and literally, you know, cutting people in half in the you know, in the in the conference room where General Hull is trying to figure out what to do. And he finally says, okay, uh, we got to surrender. And so um, he wants to, he essentially wants to avoid huge blood, bloodshed and, um, and surrenders the fort. Yeah, he was eventually mocked around Toronto, if I remember correctly. They walked him around the city and would make fun of him. Um, so, 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 I mean, there's a lot we didn't go over, uh, Peter, and there's so much good in this book. I mean, I'm just going through my notes. I have, I think I have like 35 questions. Um, the last thing I was going to ask you, and I'll, I'll give this up to you. Is there anything else that you think should be mentioned or would you rather mention in this, 
you know, I'll call anticlimactic moment. How did Tecumseh die? Would that be a better way of explaining, you know, kind of how, how he honorably went through life? Yeah, yeah, and it's really, it is a tra- tragic moment. I'm glad you, that's a great point to bring up and, and, and maybe to end on, that that Tecumseh relied on on his allies, the British, to support him in this, you know, in this battle of 1812. And, you know, he was going against the Americans and he had the British uh, on his side. And eventually what happened was the 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 tide started turning for a while. The British Indian forces were were pushing towards the east. There was, you know, panic in the east that the country might fall, that the U.S. might fall. Mm-hmm. Then the the tide shifted, and um, the the essentially the the bottom line is the British decided they couldn't waste any more money, men, energy on defending. And and Brock uh, tragically died. Brock tragically died back and east. Brock, yeah, and they lost Brock. Their 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 main their, their their boldest general. They lost Brock. The guy, the replacement general, was much much more cautious. The and so the replacement general did not make the attacks that Brock did. He instead he kind of uh, started almost withdrawing, and then eventually the British authorities said, "We can't." spend a lot of energy fighting this war in the interior of North America. We've got to bring our troops back to fight the U.S. on the East Coast and to fight Napoleon in Europe. And so they they literally, the British literally abandoned Tecumseh and his, and his forces. And Tecumseh was died in the final battle after the British literally ran away. And it wasn't much of a heroic ending. It was it was kind of almost as Tecumseh would be, uh, you know, as a warrior, which is he died in the glory of battle, and which he wanted to do. I mean, he would he would have it no other way. And so, but but it was a huge disappointment for him to have. For a while, he had all this momentum. Um, you know, he he took you know Detroit fell, Mackinac Island fell, the little post of Chicago fell. These all fell to Indian and British forces, and they were moving east. They were going for Fort Wayne. They were mm-hmm. going farther east than that. They were, you know, I call it springing open the back door of the, of the young nation. These yeah. the combined Indian-British forces sweeping towards the east. And then it, it faltered, and then it turned around, and then it failed, and then Tecumseh died in a swamp on the Thames, Thames, Thames whatever they call it, a river in, in Canada, retreating from, from, um, from the advancing Harrison army. Well, Peter, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, Gallop Toward the Sun uh, is a not often talked about history, but incredibly interesting piece uh, as you look at regional or local politics versus, as we talked about, a young federal government. It also tells the story of the pragmatism that Tecumseh and the tribes had in dealing with a dominant force while these American people dreamed for their hunger of land uh, in the very Virginia context that, that we discussed. Um, if you enjoyed our discussion about Gallup Towards the Sun and love a Book with Legs podcast, go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you consume the show to give us a review to introduce our listeners and other listeners to, as Tecumseh would say, more about our tribe and who we are. I want to thank uh, Peter so much for this. I've just had a ton of fun. Uh, for our listeners, if you have a good book you'd like to recommend, um, you can email us at podcast at speedcap.com. That's podcast at speedcap.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at speedcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs. 
a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.